Just a few updates that I want to give you, and we want to spend uh, time praying as well. So a number of you know uh, Velma. Velma Swatsky was just talking with her this week. She had thought she had cancer, and she has gone through tests, and she does. She's been diagnosed with uh, leukemia. And so we want to uh, keep her in our prayers. Uh, you know, feel free to give her a call. I know she's feeling quite tired out these days and is just keeping distance, of course, so she doesn't pick up any infections or things. But uh, please uh, keep her in your prayers. Uh, enough, some of you also know uh, Phil and Jan Thiessen, and uh, just heard, this actually happened a couple weeks ago, but their, their son Scott, who's like 46 years old, family, uh, had a sudden heart attack, and uh, so had to have uh, surgery. He is recovering, but it, is, uh, it was quite significant, and so we want to be in prayer for that family as well. And of course, we want to continue to pray for the Obatusas and... Uh, and uh, others that you know in your network and sometimes in the midst of a week, uh, you know, have opportunity to talk to people and not necessarily going public with things and yet, uh, you know, need our prayers. And so let us pray together. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can call you Father, that the Lord Jesus, you, you said this is how you should pray, not to a distant God. To a holy God, yes, but to a God who hears our prayers. In fact, the scriptures say he inclines, he leans and bends over to hear our prayers. Lord, sometimes when they are just sobs and we don't even know what to say. And you have given your spirit to, as the ultimate translator to translate what even we cannot understand but the depths of our heart, Lord, in ways that you totally understand and respond. Lord, we, we want to hold up before you Velma today. Lord, we thank you for her. Lord, we pray that you would lay your healing hand upon her, Lord. We pray that you would uh, continue to encourage her, to give her hope, for you are the God of hope, the scriptures tell us. Not a God who has a little hope. You are the God, the source of all hope, and all strength, and all healing. And Lord, we also want to pray for Scott and for his family, Lord, in this time, in this season, Lord, of recovery. Lord, we pray for your healing hand upon him. Now, Lord, sometimes things come into our lives that totally catch us off guard. And yet, Lord, it is good to remind ourselves nothing ever surprises you. And you tell us that your strength is made perfect in weakness because you are the source of all strength. And Lord, we also want to pray for Ade and Judith and their family, Lord, in this time. Lord, there are wounds of, that caused by grief, and yet, God, you are the God who is there. You, you promised that you would be present, Lord. You promised that you would be our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble, and yet when we experience it, Lord, it is a wonderful thing indeed. And we just thank you, Lord, and praise you for that. And we pray, Lord, that you would continue to be the God who walks alongside, who provides everything right when we need it. You are the God of manna. In the wilderness, Lord, your people ate. They, fed, they were fed the bread from heaven because they were in great need of you, and you supplied their needs. And so we thank you, Lord, that that is the kind of God you are and that we pray to. Amen.
Well, summer is nearing the end. Groans, anyone? Or maybe celebration? I know sometimes it's parents are uh, like, yes, uh, you know, the kids are going back to school, uh, whatever. Well, we are also nearing the end of our summer, summer series, Divine Signposts in Our Everyday World. And I was re- kind of reminded of sacred in our... My hope and prayer was that we would learn to rediscover the sacred in our everyday world. Because God is present and active in all of the stuff of life, actively pointing us and others to the one who made and sustains all things. Uh, Just this past week, even, I had preached on water last week, and I had several conversations this week, opportunities to talk about some of the wonders of water, but also how they pointed to God. And so I was like, yes, that's why (laughs) I wanted to do the series, and there were opportunities to do that just this week. Well, so far, the things that we have been exploring are mostly things that God has made. Galaxies, we started big. The sun, mountains, rainbow, waters. But there are some things worth exploring also that we have a hand in making, not creating. That word in the Bible is reserved for God, bara in Hebrew. It's always God is the subject. But he asks us to be, you know, co-workers with him. And we have a, a hand in forming, remaking what he's done. And we looked at gardens. That's a part where he calls us to be invo- actively involved. Well, this Sunday, I want us to look at something that we have even a more direct hand in, which features very prominently in the Bible and in our world. It is cities. Cities. Now, you should know that I grew up on a farm in Manitoba. And that to my father, cities were the concrete jungle. (laughs) He believed they had few, if any, redeeming qualities. Now, even as a kid, I thought I knew one, because right before Christmas, we would go each year into the big city, into Polo Park Mall, and we would do our Christmas shopping. And I thought that was pretty cool. But for my father, if there was a Bible story that it captured what he thought of cities, it would be the story of the Tower of Babel. Genesis 11, it did not go well. Well, you know, the truth is many of the biblical writers were not impressed with cities either. You might wonder why. Because often the cities mentioned in the Bible are places of arrogance, injustice, rampant evil, and violence. Any idea who the first city builder in the Bible was? Genesis 4:17. You're all going to wait. I'm waiting for you. If you're waiting for me, like we're going to be here a while. This is the clue. Genesis 4:17, first city builder. Cain. That's right. Remember Cain? The guy who killed his brother Abel? Yeah. Well, Genesis 4.17 that says not long after he, he knocked off his brother, he went and built a city and he named it after his son Enoch, which may not seem like much to us, but he should have been naming something after God, and he's naming it after his self, his own descendants. And it's Cain's descendants that built the famous or infamous Canaanite cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, His descendants in the cities of Egypt and Exodus will become the places where, built by slave labor, 
by God's people who were the slaves. By Genesis 11, all of humanity is building a great city together, seeking both independence from God and trying to put themselves ultimately in the place of God. That's why they're making it so high. Now, we don't have to read very far in our Bibles to find how cities have become places of moral corruption, idolatry, enmity against God, slavery for God's people, and centers of political power and war. Perhaps my father was right, but only partially right. Because in a truly biblical theology, that is looking at everything the Bible has to say about cities in this case, rather than just selectively, cities can also be some of the best places to live and worthy of divine honor. Psalm 122. You can practice turning there again, but this time I am going to put it up on the overhead. Okay, but it celebrates Jerusalem as the center of godly worship and praise, which is why the psalmist invites the worshipers in verse 6 to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. For the sake of my family and friends, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. Speaking to Jerusalem. Now, unfortunately, the earthly city of Jerusalem rarely lived in sync with God and his ways. But when she functioned, but when she did, she functioned as a divine signpost pointing to what the writer to the, in Hebrews chapter 13 verse 14 describes as the city that is to come. Now, while it is true that human beings were placed in a garden to care for and cultivate it, Genesis 2 verse 15, it is equally true that when we get to the last book of the Bible, Revelation 20 verse 21, the apostle John, God pulls back the curtain of history and allows him to see. And what he is shown is a new heaven and a new earth that at the, at the end of t time. And then what he also sees is the holy city, the new Jerusalem. And it is a city of immense size. It says uh, about 2,200 kilometers. It's 12,000 stadia, which if you started here and you drove east, you'd have to go all the way to the Ontario border. That's how big it says it is. And that's how big it is in all dimensions, long, wide, and high. Something of immense size. I think it's saying there's room for everybody in there. Don't have to worry about that. Now, my dad and I never discussed this. I wish we had before he passed away. But I couldn't help wonder as I was working on this. I wonder what his reaction was when he got to glory and he saw that it was a city. <laughs> I don't know. I'm going to check with them when I get there one day. Now, the reality is that virtually all of the first readers of the book of Revelation, remember, they lived in cities. Remember, the letters are written to the cities. This is where Paul went and planted churches because it was from there that the gospel he knew would spread. Now, those early readers and early Christians could hardly have imagined human existence apart from some kind of city and center of civilization. Uh, some of you have cities all your life, and it's just like... 
You know, I remember my nephew moved out to the suburbs. He had grown up in the city. And he's like, oh, I got to tell you, uncle, I was in withdrawal for years. <laughs> I'm like, well, okay. Uh, so it is worth noting that the new Jerusalem is not simply a return to the Garden of Eden. It is a city with gardens, yes. But the gardens are in a city. So this view of the end challenges, challenged me at least to go and explore the purpose of, of cities more in depth. So it's a quick kind of run through of some of the key places. And what we find in the Bible is the original tale of two cities. Uh, Dickens picked that up, obviously, from there. And an ongoing tr contrast between what St. Augustine in the fourth century called the city of man and the city of God. Andrew Wilson suggests that cities are to cultures what espresso is to Americano. Concentrated coffee, okay? So cities concentrate. He says, by clustering a large number of people in one place, cities both condense human society and exaggerate it, making its vices and virtues far easier to see. The strength of a civilization, its artistic, intellectual, cultural, social, and military achievements are almost certain to be clustered in cities. And so are its weaknesses, divisions, injustices, and sins. Nowhere in the Bible is this more vivid than in uh, Isaiah chapter 24 and 25, and actually 26, and I'm just going to look at that briefly. This is definitely the tale of two cities in Isaiah 24 and 25. The first city that we meet in Isaiah 24, it is desolate. Eerily empty. It's like a scene, you know, from one of those post-apocalyptic movies that are so popular. This is it. A couple of verses. Verse 3, for example. The earth will be completely laid waste, totally plundered. Verse 5, the earth is defiled by its people. They have disobeyed the laws, and it goes on. Therefore, earth's inhabitants, in verse 6, are, are burned up, and very few are left. Verse 8, the joyful timbrels are stilled. The noise of the revelers has gone. The joyful harp is silent. The city is left in ruins. Its gate is battered to pieces the end of the chapter, verse 20, so heavy upon it is the guilt of its rebellion that it falls never to rise again. This is the stuff of nightmares. But the city that we meet in the next chapter, Isaiah 25 and 26, is glorious. In this city, God himself acts as the city walls. Notice in, in 25 verse 4, you have been, you have been a refuge for the poor, for the needy in distress, a shelter from the storm, and a shade from the heat. And, and this city is full of joyful songs. In chapter 26, it begins in verse 1 uh, with, uh, with a song. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. The Lord, um, we have a strong city. God makes salvation its walls and ramparts, and the, and the song will go on. And in contrast to the boarded-up buildings and post-apocalyptic city, the gates of this strong city are always open, that the righteous nations, it says, may enter in. And isolation and desolation have been replaced by community, celebration, and in, in chapter 26, verse 3, perfect peace. 
perfect peace for those whose minds are steadfast in their trust in the Lord. In this place, uh, chapter 25, verse 6 tells us, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all people, a banquet with the best of meats and the finest of wines. Tears, shame, and death itself will be eradicated. For it says in, in 25, verse 8, he will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord, that is himself, will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. And in response, his people celebrate and sing, Surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. 25 verse 9. The worst of times gives way to the best of times. And this tale of two cities is just one of numerous examples. Genesis, early on, it compares Babel, uh, you know, the city, with Bethel. Babel, chapter 11, Genesis 11, the city where the people, you know, conspire together to try to build, you know, a tower all the way up to heaven. Bethel, in contrast, in Genesis 28, it's the one where uh, Jacob is fleeing. He puts his head on a pillow, and what happens? He has a dream. And there is a ladder into heaven, but God and his angels are coming down to us. A total reversal. And the main contrast in much of Israel's history is, of course, Jerusalem versus Babylon. Jerusalem, also known as the city of our God, because this is where God made his dwelling on earth. It's described in Psalm 48, verse 2, as the, the joy of the whole earth. In contrast with Babylon, the center of idolatry, immorality, injustice, and imperialism and slavery. Yet Jerusalem is never 100% good. There arose a very popular but false theology in Jeremiah's day, Jeremiah chapter 7, that since God had miraculously delivered Jerusalem from the Assyrian invasion during King Hezekiah's reign, it was a miraculous one, you can read it in Isaiah 37, but they believed then, well, Jerusalem, you know, with the temple of God, it's never going to be taken. That was the theology they had, and so God sent Jeremiah to deliver a very famous temple sermon in which he told them, do not trust in Je Jeremiah 7 verse 4, do not trust in deceptive words and say, oh, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. It's like a lucky rabbit's foot or something. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Jesus himself will also give a famous temple sermon, and he will say, oh, you see all of these giant blocks, not one stone will be left along another. In fact, within a generation, it would be leveled to the ground. Because you did not follow God's way when God gave the opportunity to avoid all of this war and disaster. And the truth is that all cities tend to center and focus their security and significance on something. 
You know, we have the city of the arts next door, right? Cities collectively reflect, I think, an individual kind of bent. In the ancient world, the center of a city was usually the temple of its local god. In our cities today, the gods are still there, but the temples and worship centers look different. Coquitlam Center is a shopping mall. Yeah, right? Okay. Others have the financial towers, military centers, Hollywood, entertainment centers, you know, Sin City even advertises itself for that. Wherever you go, the urban gods reflect the highest good of the city, of that city. And in Revelation chapter 17, we also find a huge city of man. She calls herself Babylon the Great. But the Apostle John sees that God has a very different sign posted on the entrance to this city. You see, God's billboard on the city identifies her instead as the mother of prostitutes and the abominations of the earth. Not very flattering, is it? To one who pictured herself as the queen. I learned recently that New York City, perhaps the foremost city of our time, you know, the Big Apple, was intentionally founded to be a secular city. People fled to New York to escape the places living under the influence of religion. More than 15 years after New York City was founded originally, it still had no church. Our cities, at least in the West, have increasingly become de-churched, which is celebrated by some, but the problems grow when God's design for our personal and collective lives are ignored and rejected. The big apple becomes the bad apple. When the prophet John saw the new Jerusalem in Revelation 21, he makes a curious note that he did not see a temple in the city either. But then he goes on to immediately explain the reason. It is not a city lacking the influence of religion, but a city completely saturated by it because, he says, the Lord all, God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. In other words, it is all temple. It is a holy city Lit, it says, by the glory of God and the Lamb, and all the nations will walk by its light. Now, if the new Jerusalem, the city of God, has never fully been present on earth, and won't be until Babylon is finally destroyed by God, what are we supposed to do in the meantime? <laughs> Wait it out? Hmm. Now, there will be times when even Revelation says when patient endurance may be the only thing that we can do in the midst of persecution. But most often, as Jesus said in his letter, letters to the seven churches in Revelation, living in very difficult times, basically, we're called to be ambassadors for the city of God. That is, embodying its values and practices of the kingdom of God, like Jesus did and like Jesus taught, like he taught us to do. 
In his famous Sermon on the Mount, we just finished our Bible study this, on it this last week. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew uh, chapter 5, Jesus talks about, you are a city set on a hill. You are the light of the world. I was reflecting on the story of Sodom and Gomorrah back in, in Genesis 19, because let's face it, in many ways, not always, but in many ways, our cities are spiraling downward. Addiction, theft, violence, homelessness, you, the list goes on. They are taking an increasingly, an increasing toll on our cities and on those who live in them. We might think, okay, we'll curse the darkness. That doesn't do very much. God tells us instead of, you know, spending all your time cursing the darkness, shine God's light in it. You know, in dark places, a little light makes a huge difference, right? And I got thinking, how many righteous people would it have taken to spare Sodom and Gomorrah? Remember Genesis 18, Abraham, he's horrified to hear, you know, and so he starts haggling with God. It's almost like an oriental bazaar, you're haggling over the price. And he's like, well, you know, you wouldn't destroy it if there was like 50 righteous people, would you? No. Oh, about 40. No, no, I won't destroy it for 40. 30, 20, he goes all the way down to 10. As the story unfolds, there aren't really any righteous in it. Because even Lot and his family, God has to take them out. But God was willing to spare the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah if there were ten righteous people, being the salt and light that he had called them to be. And I thought, wow, isn't that little big things? A little bit of light, a little bit of salt in the places. That's what God is calling us, to somehow embody the kingdom of God in the city of man. And I wondered, why did Abraham care so deeply about Sodom and Gomorrah? Why didn't he say, let him go to hell in a handbasket? Because he had personal connections. He had family there. And, I, you know, the more personal connections we have in the city in places that need God's light, the more we will care deeply about it too. Right? Within our circle of influence, it might be the homeless. And we have a friend or a family member who's one of them. People who are in depression, deep depression. The addicted, the conflicted, it goes on. So often in our lives, God has brought some of these things into our lives so that we would know we would care deeply for others who are going through it and that we could point others to that to him as well that we could share with them the comfort that we ourselves have received the hope that we ourselves have received from god in all different circles and so i think the more personal connections we have in our city and with the people individuals in it and neighbors uh, we will be a lot more like abraham caring deeply, doing our part. You know, the Old and New Testament is filled with stories of godly influence and transformation in cities that ought to encourage and inspire us. You know, Joseph in Egypt, 
right? And God sends one person there to be salt and light. It's like, don't be discouraged. You may feel like you're just in a prison, no influence. Keep living for me. God can turn things around. Uh, Hannah, Boaz, and Ruth. In the New Testament, the church of Ephesus, read Acts 19. Uh, Tabitha, the woman who, uh, you know, when one of the apostles dies, is martyred, they don't bring him back to life. But when Tabitha dies, the town where she's in, they're grief-stricken. And God prompts Peter to bring her back to life again. They can't live without her. Seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, Jesus said. And all these things will be added to you. I want to invite the worship team to, to come up. As they're coming, let's pray. Oh, Lord God, I confess it is easy just to curse the darkness. But God, uh, we see time and again in your word, <laughs> we see the city of Nineveh, and Jonah didn't want to go there because he knew how great your mercy was, and that if they turned it all and, were, and repented of what they had done, that you would forgive them. And Lord, you do. That is your heart for our cities. Lord, for our city. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be salt and light. Lord, that you would connect us with the people, Lord, maybe who can help us and also that we can help in return and to share, Lord, the good news of who you are, the God who is the great comforter, the God who is the God of hope, the God of healing, and the one who gives strength when our strength has run out. Thank you that you are indeed building the city and the kingdom of God, even in our time, for your honor and your glory. Amen. Amen. That's the way to send us out. <laughs> Just, you know, I always give you, a, well, often give you an assignment. Did you do your assignment last week? Yes. All right. You had a drink of water and you thank God for the thirst quenching power. You did? All right. That's great. Wonderful. Well, this week, the lines from that song. Awake the kingdom seat in us and also heal our streets and land. Can you make that your prayer this week? If you forget the lyrics, you just look up the song, right? Build your kingdom here. Uh, just one story from the, the funeral service on Friday. One of the speakers was a, a pastor. I had never met him before. He works uh, downtown, inner city. Himself came off the street, Francis Gothia. And uh, I really thanked him for sharing some of his story because for me, he embodied hope. He had been in that for 15 years and, and God brought him out. And he is a light for God in some of the darkest places. And uh, the darkness fears people who bring the light. Really do. Really do. Remember that. We, we sing that. Let the darkness fear. Yeah. God, let the darkness fear because we want to shine your light. So let's pray that this week.
And I want to also a reminder, if you would like prayer, uh, Gordon and Annette, I know from our prayer team, will be right up here at the, at the front, and they would love, I know, to pray with you. A prayer from Sri Lanka. As water falls on dry tea leaves and brings out their flavor, so may your spirit fall on us and renew us so we may bring refreshment and joy to others. God's people said, Amen.